0: Well, if you have a uh, Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Mark, we are studying Mark chapter 14. Uh, We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for some time. and We're getting close to the end uh, of the book. We are at Mark 14, 27 uh, through 42. This is the passage dealing with the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 42. Deny you, and they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's give ear to God's word uh, this morning. Well, if, if you weren't here last week, again, we're going through the book verse by verse. We're not skipping around. Uh, so we're, we, last week we looked at verses 12 through 26 of Mark 14 we saw that uh, back then it was the first day of the Passover feast the week long feast of unleavened bread and the Lord Jesus at that time what did he do he celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem with his disciples with the 12 while he's celebrating the Passover he predicted with the with the 12 that one of them was going to be his betrayer he also instituted the Lord's supper at that time well here in our text this morning he doesn't just predict his betrayal he tells the 12 that they were all going to fall away. Now as if it wasn't bad enough that that Judas, one of the 12 who had been with Jesus for the better part of 3 years, following him, serving him, doing, you know, listening to him teach, seeing his miracles, you know, Judas would betray him, but the rest of them weren't going to do much better. They were all going to fall away from him and and be scattered. At Jesus' closest companions on this earth. One of them would betray him and the rest would leave him in his darkest hour. Jesus was going to be left alone all by himself in his darkest hour. Well, here in our passage this morning, we see uh, our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, there we find him, verse 33 says, that he says, he was greatly distressed and troubled. And he said of himself that he was sorrowful even unto death. We find him kind of wrestling, as it were, in prayer with his father, here we see, uh, you know, all of all of Christ's earthly ministry in some sense was was an act of humiliation, an act of humility on his part. In some way, all of it was an act of suffering. Not to say that Jesus didn't have great joy at the same time, but uh, but it was this was kind of the, the beginning. What we're seeing in this text with the Garden of Gethsemane uh, is kind of the beginning of the end, the beginning of his worst sorrows and troubles especially on on the cross itself. And here we see in our text, I think, the weight of that weighing and pressing down upon him. Here I think we see the weight of the sins of the world weighing upon Christ in the garden. He's about to be betrayed. The next thing we're going to see in Mark's gospel is Judas showing up and the cross is not long after after that. Here in our text, I think we see the true humanity of Christ. We see the real intensity of the agony that he suffered for us, for his people, Um, You know, this is one of those texts, you know, I think I I might have said a few weeks ago that uh, when we looked at at Mark 13, which is the Olivet Discourse, a lot of pastors and commentators and scholars will say that that's the hardest passage in the New Testament uh, to understand and to preach. There's so much there, it's hard to to keep uh, track of everything, it's hard to keep things straight. Well, in a lot of ways, this is harder for a different reason. This passage and it 's because the things that are spoken of in these verses and really the rest of what Mark talks about in his gospel are they 're just beyond our our capability to comprehend it's it's really difficult for us to to really have any grasp of christ 's true humanity and the agony that he endured for us for our salvation, no less than uh, Charles Spurgeon says the following about our passage this morning about christ 's agony in Gethsemane Charles Spurgeon says. We have thus come to the gate of the garden of Gethsemane. Let us now enter, but first let us put off our shoe from our foot as Moses did when he also saw the bush which which burned with fire and was not consumed. Surely we may say with Jacob, how dreadful or awesome is this place. I tremble at the task which lies before me, for how shall my feeble speech Describe these agonies for which strong crying and tears were scarcely an adequate expression. Thanks, no pressure, right? If if Charles Spurgeon couldn't figure out how to preach this, maybe I should have skipped to the next uh, passage. But, uh, you know, think about this. You know, remember when I read the text, what does Jesus do with, with the disciples? Most of them, he tells them, sit here while I pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, and kind of goes. Another one of the gospels says that he goes a stone's throw away from them. So, really, nobody, uh, none of the twelve, are right there with him as he prays to the Father. Uh, And yet, what do we have the privilege of doing because of the scriptures? We get a glimpse uh, into Christ. You know, this is a very private thing. Christ's prayer to the Father, in a sense, is both private, kind of hidden from the disciples, from the twelve and yet recorded for us that we might see something of Christ's agony for our sakes, his prayer and agony in the garden that he went through and endured for our salvation uh, in, in him. We are given access by God's kindness into this scene, and so to borrow uh, Spurgeon's turn of phrase from the book of Exodus in chapter 3, let's not literally take your shoes off, but take off the shoes from our feet and think of this as holy ground that we are given the privilege to look at this morning. I hope today to look at three things from our text uh, three things first the abandonment of Christ the abandonment of Christ the second the sorrows of Christ and third the prayers of of Christ well let's look at the abandonment of Christ in verses 27 to 31 here what does Jesus do he foretells to his disciples he prophesies ahead of time that they were all going to fall away and this was really going to happen quite quickly it's going to happen in this very in this very chapter. As we go on, they're going to fall away. They're going to abandon him in his time of trial and his time of death. When he needed them most, they were all going to turn their backs on him. You can imagine how hard that would have been for them to hear. They spent—I mean, when Jesus, you know, think about it. Jesus in Galilee, back in the early chapters of Mark's gospel, what does he do? He's walking. He sees, you know, Peter and and, and his brother. And what does he say? You know, basically, drop your nets and follow me. And what do they do? They drop everything. Normal people don't do that. That doesn't just happen. Uh, That was an act of God's grace and his uh, sovereign grace at that. Uh, But they left everything and followed him for three years. They listened to his teaching. They saw his miracles. Uh, They saw his sinless perfection, his living to do the will of his father in all things. They did, for the most part, what he told them to do. Uh, we Just just like us, they, they failed in many ways, just as we do. But they 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 put their lives on hold in some sense. In other sense, they got it back. But they, they followed Christ all that time. And now Jesus, right at the very end, tells them, you're all going to fall away. must have been a very difficult thing to say. In verse 27, he says, uh, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, what does he mean by fall away? That's a scary phrase. When you think of people falling away from Christ, what do you think of? You think of losing salvation and things like that. It's it's, it's rendered in different ways by different translations. Uh, the King James says that they would be offended. the The Greek word we get the word scandal from it, or scandalized from it, and that doesn't really that that word the way we use it doesn't do justice to what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying you're going to be offended and I'm going to do something and you're gonna, you're not going to be happy with it. That's not what he's saying. Uh, the New King James puts it this way, that they would be, quote, made to stumble. They'd be made to stumble. I think that's actually closer to what uh, the, the word is, the way the word is being used here uh, by our Savior here. Now, it doesn't mean that they're lost. It doesn't mean that the 12 were going to be lost. It doesn't mean that they're going to somehow lose their salvation. I think the best way, is, as is usually the case, for us to comprehend what, this, what he means by this phrase here in this text is by looking at the rest of the passage, by looking at the what's the word we always throw around, context. Context is is key. Uh, what's the end result of this falling away or stumbling that, that he shows us in the text? He says it right in that, that quotation from Zechariah 13. They were going to be scattered. They're going to flee from him. They're going to turn their backs on him and abandon him. And in addition to that, what does Jesus tell Peter that Peter was going to do three times that night? Now, Peter's saying, you know, even, if, even if I have to die with you, I'm not going to, you know, and Jesus says, you're going to deny me. So, you know, scattering from Jesus, denying Christ, and that word denying could probably be better rendered as, as disown. You know, that's really what Peter did. When that servant girl said, hey, aren't you one of them? I, you know, he can't get himself distance away from Jesus enough. Even in the eyes of a little servant girl at that time, they were going to be scattered. They were going to deny or disown him. Uh, Peter was going to deny or disown him three times that very night. I mean, the same night that he's in the garden with Jesus, he's going to be denying his Lord three times. So not only would would Judas, one of the twelve, betray Christ, but the rest of the twelve were going to turn their backs on him as well. Jesus was going to be abandoned in his work uh, for our salvation. It was something he had to do alone. No one else could could be a co-redeemer with him. This was something he had to undergo by himself for our salvation. Now, Jesus tells them these things ahead of time. You might wonder, why does he do that? Why bother? Why does Jesus tell them while they're in the garden that they're going to, to abandon him, they're going to fall away? Well, I think he's doing it for a couple reasons. One, to prepare them for what's to come. We don't know if they really paid enough attention to be... Prepared, but he wanted to prepare them even for their own failures. You know, you could think of this in a way, it might not sound like it, but it's almost like Jesus is trying to soften the blow of what's about to happen. In other words, he knew before they did it that they were going to do this. They didn't know they were going to do this, but Jesus did. And he tells them ahead of time. And he even tells them something else. He says it was prophesied ahead of time in Scripture. And he quotes Zechariah 13.7, where it talks about uh, you know striking the, the shepherd uh, he puts it I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered that's Zechariah 13:7 now who is the one speaking in Zechariah 13:7 who is the I and I will strike the shepherd it's the Lord of hosts it's God himself is saying I am going to strike the shepherd it's God in in that in that passage itself in the passage there in Zechariah what God does is he calls upon his sword his sword to strike his shepherd. It's in the imperative mode. He's telling his sword, strike his own shepherd and his sheep will be scattered. Now that that, pro- that prophecy in Zechariah 13 is a prophecy of Christ. Jesus applies it to himself. Jesus says it's a prophecy of his own cross, his own crucifixion and, and death. Uh, there, there Christ endured the wrath of God for the sins of of man, that the wrath of God is poured out on Christ on the cross in our place as our substitute so that we might have life and forgiveness in him. Now, Zechariah prophesied that when God's shepherd was struck, what was going to happen to the sheep? It's an analogy that's not hard to discern. The shepherd is the one leading, guiding, and protecting the sheep, and yet what happens when the shepherd is struck, the sheep... Are all scattered, so the disciples themselves weren't going to be able to withstand and pass this particular test. Now Peter tells Jesus that again, you know, even if everyone else does, imagine the others might be kind of offended by this, you know. Even if the rest of them, you can almost picture him pointing, they might all fall away, but I won't. Not me. I'm I'm super disciple. You know, I'm 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 at the top of the heap of of the twelve. Um, and yet Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows twice that night, he was going to deny or disown him. And Peter said even if he had to die, he wasn't going to do that. Now, Peter didn't fall away right away, right? Peter, we think, is the one that, that drew the sword and cut off a person's ear trying to defend Jesus. So he made a good a good attempt at it, even if it was wrongly uh, thought the way that he uh, had, had done it. Um, but Anyway, notice that in in case we're too hard, we're always hard on Peter, right? Because Peter, especially remember the the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark in particular is kind of Peter's account. So think of the humility that Peter is is really exemplifying here to have his own faults put front and center. And then Mark, what does Mark add there though? Mark adds verse 31, they all said the same. He wasn't the only one that said that. They all Maybe they heard him and said, well, well, me neither. I'll never do that. I'll never, even if I have to die. But they all said the same thing as Peter. None of them could believe that they would turn their backs on their Lord. And yet we find out later on in verse 50, that's exactly what they do. They really do scatter even as the word of God said. So our Lord Jesus Christ, the redeemer of God's elect, was left to suffer alone. The suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy had to bear the burden of, of the work of our redemption by himself, taking the sufferings for our sin that we deserve upon himself and upon himself alone. Now, what great mercy is shown by our Lord in this passage and in the rest of of the Gospel of Mark, in that, think about this, he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. He knew ahead of time that these men, not only was one of them going to betray him, but the eleven were going to scatter. The the eleven were going to leave him high and dry at his worst moment, They were going to abandon him in his worst hour, and yet he never abandoned them. He knew ahead of time all these things, even before he chose them, and yet what did he he still chose them. He didn't choose anybody else, he didn't choose differently because of what he knew ahead of time. He chose them just the same. And then look at verse 28. Look at what he says, uh, you know, just after, this is right after telling them they're going to fall away, he gives them this, this relief. And hopefully they took it that way. He says, but after I'm raised up. So he's, he's saying he's going to die. After, they're going to desert him. He's going to die. But then he says, after I'm raised up, I will go what? Before you into Galilee. He's, he's not letting them go. They're, they're going to desert him. He's not going to desert them or let them go. This would not be the end of. Of his story with with them. And, and so he once again, as he does throughout the gospel, really, he prophesies not only of his death, but of his coming resurrection from the dead, and that the cross and the grave would not have the last word over him. Uh, but here he also tells them that he would come back to them and go before them into Galilee. In other words, they're going to be with him again. They're going to scatter, and he's going to gather. He's going to bring them back to himself. So let us learn a couple things I think from these verses there's a lot a lot of things that we can learn and apply to ourselves from these kinds of verses but the first thing I think we should learn you and I is humility. Humility. You and I should not overestimate our own strength and our own abilities. You know that the disciples thought pretty highly of themselves it appears and yet what happened? They still failed uh, when the chips were down. And also let us not look down on our own brothers and sisters in Christ for their faults, their weaknesses, and their shortcomings. You know, we—I think most of us are tempted to do one of two things, maybe both. You're either really hard on yourself, right, uh, and you you think the worst of yourself, which isn't always a bad idea in some ways, but or you're you're you think highly of yourself and think lesser of other people, even your own family in in Christ. And yet, you know, what does Christ do? The one who was sinless and perfect didn't didn't do that. He had patience with his with his disciples, and he even has patience with us. And so, we should show some of that some of that same patience toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, despite their faults, shortcomings, and and weaknesses. And we should recognize that we too have those same, uh, very often those very same weaknesses and shortcomings. Paul says in First Corinthians ten twelve. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't get a big head. Think about yourself. We should think about ourselves the way that we ought to with humility uh, and grace. If the apostles themselves stumbled, who are we to think that we would have done any better or been any stronger than they have been? Uh, We too need to learn our own limitations. Uh, And know that as John 15, 5 says, what does Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not Well, not some things, but not the big thing. Nothing. We can do nothing apart from from Christ. We also need to learn, as they did, what does Jesus tell them to do in verse 38? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. We need to learn that lesson as well. Lord willing, we'll do just that. Also, the second thing we can learn from this text, from this part of our passage, is that we need to glory and praise the great mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because He knows full well, better than we do, our faults, our weaknesses, our shortcomings. And yet he knows our sins, and yet how patient how patient is he with us? How long-suffering is Christ with his people? He bears with us in our weaknesses and infirmities. And, and why does he do that? Well, he came to bear our weaknesses and infirmities. He came to bear even our sins. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's on Christ, the iniquity of us all. What does Isaiah say there? Every single one of us has gone astray. Every All of us have turned aside to our own way, have turned away, and what did, what did God do about that? He laid on Christ, his son, the iniquity of all his sheep. All, all of the sins and iniquities of, of God's people were laid on Christ on the cross. That's what God did about our going astray. Well the second thing Related to the first, I'd like us to look at this morning briefly is the sorrows. The sorrows of Christ. You know, we just sang a song this morning that uh, the, the more common title to it is, is from the first line of the hymn. And it's Man of Sorrows, What a Name for the Son of God who came uh, to, 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 re, to uh, fallen sinners to, to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's why he came, that's why he suffered. And he's a man of sorrows. In verses 32 to 34, he says this, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, I don't know about you. Somebody tells you that. That should get your attention. And yet they couldn't stay awake. He tells them he's he's sorrowful. He's, he's practically saying "I'm." he almost felt like he was going to die just from the sorrow of it. Not just at the prospect of it, that the burden itself, the sorrow itself was so heavy upon him that he felt like he might die. The sorrows of Christ, these sorrows, were prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years, 700 some years before the days of Christ, before he was in this garden. In Isaiah 53 again, Isaiah 53 verse 3, this is how it describes the Lord's Christ, his suffering servant. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, the, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being a, a sympathetic, a merciful and sympathetic great high priest he knows what it's like to be tempted in all respects yet without sin, so he can sympathize with us as our mediator and and savior. But how can that be? Like like that first line of that hymn goes, uh, "Man of Sorrows." What a name! How can how could he be called a man of? How could Christ be called a man of sorrows? It doesn't fit. How could the sinless Son of God? You know, in, in our catechism and in the scripture sin and misery are like peanut butter and jelly but really bad peanut butter and jelly they, they go together right our sin and our miseries in this life go together sin brings misery and death jesus never sinned never once did he did he not do perfectly the will of the father not once he lived the life that we should have lived perfectly and yet that one, that that one is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, here we see Christ in the garden being a man of sorrows and being acquainted with grief. But how how should he be a man of sorrows? Well, the prophet Isaiah, in the very next verse, Isaiah 53, 4, tells us exactly why and how that could possibly be. How Christ, the Lord of glory, the sinless Son of God, could be a man of sorrows. And here it is. He says, surely he has borne, one little word, our griefs and carried whose sorrows? Our sorrows. Yet we esteem, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, by God and afflicted. Think, think about the irony of that of that verse. Jesus doesn't have any sorrows, shouldn't have any sorrows or grief to bear on his own. And he really doesn't. What does he do? He buries he, he bears and carries our sorrows and our griefs because of our sin, and yet, what does it say? We Yet we esteemed him stricken. Like, oh, this guy must be awful. I mean, look at him. We, we look at our sins and don't even recognize them in Christ when he's suffering on the cross. The sinless Son of God and Lord of glory came to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. And that word smitten there, isn't that exactly what Jesus said in quoting Zechariah 13? Back in verse 27, he says that when the Lord says, I will what? Strike the shepherd or smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is the one striking the shepherd there? God. God the Father. We read of Christ's distress, his sorrows and grief in the garden, even his prayers filled with dread about the cup of God's wrath, that he was about to drink down to the dregs for our sins and not for his own Uh, Let us learn to to see the awful weight of our own sins. When we see Christ falling to the ground in the garden, not being able to to, to bear the sorrow and the grief and the trouble of spirit that he has, we should remember the reason for that was our sin, my sin and your sin. J.C. Ryle, I think, as usual, puts it well. He says, we ought to see in our Lord's agony in Gethsemane the exceeding sinfulness of sin and I would say of our sin. Uh, It is a subject on which the thoughts of professing Christians are far below what they should be. The careless, light way in which such sins as swearing, Sabbath-breaking, lying, and the like are often spoken of is a painful evidence of the low condition of men's moral feelings. Let the recollection of Gethsemane have a sanctifying effect upon us. Whatever others do, let us never make a mock or a mockery of sin." You and I tend to think of sin, I think, oftentimes very lightly, very casually. You know, we, we, we sin, so, probably because we sin so often, we can't bear the thought of, of how serious even those little, little quote-unquote sins may be, and yet those little sins, quote-unquote, are the things that, that Christ was bearing in Golgotha as well as uh, the Garden of Gethsemane as well. It was the burden of my sin and your sin, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, that Christ bore in that garden and on the cross, and so we should never take our sins lightly or take his grace and love for us lightly. If you're not a believer in Christ this morning, if you are still in your sins, see here in the garden the burden of your sins that you still bear, that you still bear, even if you might not at present feel anything of the true weight of it due to the hardness of your heart, which that describes a lot of us. You know, we we don't feel that burden. And yet look at Christ in the garden. That's what it looks like. That's what really feeling the burden of your sins and wickedness feels and looks like is what Christ bore in that garden even before the cross took place. Well, the third and last thing I want to look at this morning from our text uh, is the prayers of Christ in verses 35 to 36. uh, Mark writes the following. He says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, the weight of the burden that he bore, even the distress and sorrow he was enduring for our sakes, basically caused his knees to buckle. I mean, he, he the, 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 the uh, tense uh, of the, the verb in the Greek is, it's not just that he fell on the ground it was like he, it, it's more like he was falling on the ground he couldn't keep to his feet he was falling as he was praying and he, he just couldn't stay upright and so he he was falling upon the ground and so he prayed and what does it say he prayed repeatedly it even says he prayed the same words never let anybody tell you you can't pray the same thing more than once and it is somehow a lack of faith that's not Jesus prayed the same thing we prayed the Lord's Prayer those aren't empty words if we pray them from the heart as Christ taught us to to pray. Now, the fact that Christ prays at all, maybe that amazes you. In some ways, I can see how that might be the case. If anybody, we might reason wrongly this way, if anybody ever didn't need to pray, you and I might think, well, Jesus, what could he possibly need to pray about? And yet, when you read the Gospels, what do you find him doing over and over and over again? Sometimes he got away by himself on a mountaintop to pray, just to get away from everybody else and just pray to his heavenly father. And yet he prayed all the time. If anybody wouldn't have need to have prayed, we would have thought it would have been Jesus. And yet he prayed often. And he often prayed during a time of great decision or before a time of great trial. And I think we should learn from that as well. He fell to the ground. He prayed that, what does he say in verse 35? If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now in our very text, in our verses at the end of the text, he says the hour had come, and his betrayer was at hand. So God, he knew God's answer to that was, was no. And he also prayed in verse 36 that God might remove this cup from him. What cup? What cup is an odd phrase maybe to some of you. What cup is he asking God to remove from him? The cup of his suffering, his death on the cross. And I, I think it shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't take it as a coincidence that Jesus uses the word cup here when in the, passages, the passage right before this, what do we see him doing? The Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper. The cup of, of his blood in the new covenant, well, that's that's his suffering and death on the cross. He, he's praying that if it's, God, if it's possible that God might allow that cup to pass from him, his suffering on the cross, and he prayed that more than once. Verse 39 says he prayed the same thing again. Now, what does that mean? How are we to take that? We aren't to take that as Christ being unwilling to die for our sins. He died willingly. He laid down his own life. No one took it from him. He died of his own accord for our sins. And yet I think what this is to teach is it shows us just how awful this prospect of this suffering and death really was to him. You know, very often we we in in confessional, conservative, Bible-believing, whatever words you want to use, you know, circles, We often have to go to great pains to defend the divinity, the deity of Christ. And rightly so. There are many cults and false religions and false teachers who will tell you that Jesus was just a man uh, and that God used all kinds of weird heresies out there. And we have to affirm what the scripture does, that he's God. But at the same time, I think we often go too far the other direction and don't think much of his true humanity. He's God and man in one person. Forever in two distinct natures, but one person. He's truly God and truly man. And sometimes I think we don't think much on his true humanity, as much as we do his divinity. When when the prospect of his suffering, this terrible, awful suffering, not just the physical death, right? Not just the physical death, but the but bearing the weight of our sins in that death, is most likely the thing he couldn't. He just couldn't couldn't come to grips with and say so praise to God. That God might remove that cup from him. I think that's meant to show us how awful sin is, how awful the load of our the, the, the weight of our sins was upon our Saviour. And then what does he add there in verse thirty six? He says, Yet not what I will, but what you will. He submitted to the will of his Father in all things, even to the death of a cross, as Paul says in the book. Now, what an example he sets for us, for his redeemed people in praying this way, because you and I at times find ourselves faced with suffering according to the will of God. In fact, the scripture says what? That he he left an example for us. His suffering is, the scripture says, an example for us that we might what? Follow in his footsteps. We shouldn't find suffering in this life terribly uh, surprising in some ways. It's, it's elsewhere, the Bible says that we're called to it. We're actually called to it. If we're following Christ, sometimes we're going to suffer. And and so we shouldn't be ashamed to pray the way Jesus did. There's nothing wrong, nothing unspiritual, nothing unchristian about praying for God to remove suffering from you. I, I, I would guess, go on a small limb, not a very high limb, that everyone in this room has prayed that multiple times in some ways in your life. I have, you probably have too. Um, whatever the case may have been. Uh, but at the same time, as we pray for that, and we pray for it repeatedly, I'm sure, what else should we pray? Not my will, but your will be done. We, we need to trust the will of our Father in Heaven, who loved us enough to send Christ to die for our sins and suffer in our place, that if He, if he calls upon us to suffer some things, whatever that may be, that He has His good purposes, even good purposes for us, in it he will even bless us and sanctify that to us for our good and for his for his glory so there's nothing wrong with praying for god to relieve us from our suffering and grief and misery but we must all always pray for god's will to be done in our lives whatever the case uh, may be and notice that jesus doesn't just set an example in prayer even in this passage even when he's you know got the load of our sins weighing down on him he he takes the time to teach the disciples and us to pray he's still teaching he's still teaching he says in verse 38 watch and pray he tells the, the disciples watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation the spirit indeed is what willing but the flesh is is weak um, that, that could be all of our life verse our life's verse right there we we want to do the right thing but our flesh is very often weak we want to pray we know praying is a good thing to do but very often our, our flesh is just as weak as the twelve And we find ourselves falling asleep and doing other things rather than than praying. Now, Jesus himself in our text is watching and praying. He's basically saying, do what I'm doing. Watch and and pray. Now, why was he watching and praying? He knew what was about to come. He knew his hour was about to be upon him. He knew he was about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He knew the time of trial and testing was right upon them. And so he told them to, to watch and pray just as he... Was doing, and so you and I must learn to be watchful for the temptations and trials that come our way. We must pray. None of us, you know, if if anything about this passage that we learn from it, it should be our own insufficiency and weakness. Um, None of us are sufficient. None of us are strong enough in and of ourselves to endure the trials and things that come our way and the temptations. And the people who know that well. And the people who know that well enough are going to be the people who watch and pray. When, when do we not pray? Well, all the time, probably. When, when, what is the cause of our lack of prayer? There's lots of causes, but one of them is that we think we can handle it. We think when it gets really bad, we'll pray. Because we think that we're sufficient. I think that I can handle up to this, this point, and then maybe I'll ask God for help. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do Nothing. Nothing. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves. And so we need to watch and we need to pray. When you're praying, you're seeking help from the throne of grace. And so Jesus showed it and modeled it to them and even taught them repeatedly to pray. And then at the end of our passage, verses 41 to 42, it says, and he came, uh, he came the third time. Remember? So he's coming back to them again and again and finding them asleep and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Uh, you know, you're you're taking you're taking time off here. Uh, it is enough. The hour has come. Remember, the hour he asked that God might let be passed by him. Now he says, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, from here on out in Mark's Gospel, the rest of chapter fourteen, chapter fifteen, and sixteen, we're going to be seeing kind of kind of uh, you know everything else in the Gospel of Mark has been in a hurry. All of a sudden, he slows things down. And for these three chapters, we're going to be seeing Christ's betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. That's what Mark is going to spread out over three chapters to teach us. Everything beforehand that we've read, even in our text this morning, was preparing us for this. It was leading up to, uh, necessarily, these things, preparing us to at least try to understand these things, even though, in a sense, they're kind of beyond our ability to comprehend. You know, it, it, It's really beyond our ability to understand these things. And so uh, we'll finish with quoting uh, the Puritan theologian John Owen, talking about the glory of Christ, and he says this. I think this is a good, a good place to stop. He says, and where understanding fails, let worship and adoration take place. Same kind of thing that Spurgeon was saying about taking your feet off for this is holy ground. Like This this whole passage, it's it's above our pay grade. It's above our ability to comprehend and really understand, but it's not above our ability to adore and worship Christ who suffered these things, not for his own benefit, but for our benefit. If you're a believer, he suffered for your sins and for mine that we might be forgiven and accepted by God as righteous in his sight because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the great exchange in the gospel, right? Jesus, the sinless son of God, who deserves nothing but blessedness forever uh, and happiness and never once needed or deserved sorrow of any kind, what did he do? God took our sins and, and imputed them to Christ on the cross. He, he carried, he placed on Christ the iniquities of a soul that we might be blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places with Christ, that Christ himself earned by his obedience and even his death on our behalf. That's that's the great exchange in the gospel. He gets our sin and misery and death that we deserve uh, throughout his life and on the cross especially. And what do we get? We we still die in this life and unless the Lord comes back before then, uh, but death is no longer no longer has teeth to us. To anyone who's in Christ, all death does is usher you into the presence of God, the Lord of glory in heaven. Um, and so we, we have the, the righteousness of Christ put to our account where God accepts us, that's justification. He accepts you as righteous in his sight. Why? Because Christ was righteous in your place. And your sins are, are totally paid for by Christ on his cross. That's, that's what the Bible teaches from back to front and front to back, uh, that God saved sinners, that he came to seek and save that which was lost, including uh, his work here, in the garden of gethsemane as well as in the cross itself let's let's pray heavenly father we thank you for these thank you for your scriptures thank you for the gospels thank you for giving us uh you didn't just give us a a a one paragraph summary of the work of your son but you you for our benefit you told us all these things you even gave us an, an insight into the garden of gethsemane and christ's agony and prayer uh, on our behalf, that we might see the love of Christ, the love that you have for us in Christ, that you have for sinners and for the wicked, even such as us, that you would send him to suffer and endure all these things for our salvation. Um, we, we look at these things and we, we see the, the magnitude and the weight of our sins that we don't often appreciate for what they are. But we thank you that that weight has been placed, uh, that you have you have laid on Christ your Son the iniquity of us all, that we might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in your sight. In him, by faith in him, we thank you for your amazing grace and love and patience with us and we ask that you would uh, make us grow in our faith, help us to see these things clearly, to believe them, to live in light of them, give us grace to be humble and to be people who pray and people who look to Christ for all things. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, if there's anybody here who is still in their sins and still bearing the weight of their sins, that you might open their eyes and and draw them to faith in Christ, that they might have life eternal and abundant in his name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.